Welcome back to our study in the Gospel of Mark. Do me a favor, if you haven't already, please open your Bibles or your Bible devices to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. And before we go any further, I want you to, to do something. Just pick that Bible up or that Bible device and, and look at it real closely. And I just want you to, I want you to hear this from, from my mouth to, to your ears. We love this book. We study this book. We seek by the grace of God to follow and to obey this book. And every Sunday, it is with great joy that we get to teach. We get to teach from the Word of God. And what I want you to know is this, and I'll say it twice because I really want you to hear this, that um, everything in the Bible is equally true, but not everything in the Bible is equally clear. Let me say that again. Everything in the Bible is equally true, but not everything in the Bible is equally clear. And what I mean by that is there are sections of Scripture that are hard to understand. You may remember in our series a, a couple of years ago in 2 Peter, we did first and second Peter. In second Peter chapter three, Peter, the apostle Peter says that some of the teachings of the apostle Paul are hard to understand. And now there are a lot of reasons for this, that some things aren't clear. Um, another reason would, would be that there's some things in the Bible that we just go, man, I don't like what it's saying. Romans calls this suppressing the truth. We hear it, we see it, but we don't receive it. We suppress it. We say, nope, not, not for me. Sometimes, um, because there's, you know, depending whether it's Old or New Testament, there's thousands of years differences, right? There's a thousand, two thousand, four thousand, five thousand years difference um, as we go from Genesis to Revelation, even when it comes to us. And there are cultural things that at first glance we go, ah, that were particular to the Jews. Um, and we go, we don't quite understand it. Today, we hit one of those sections in Scripture that is, that is true, but not completely clear. In fact, some commentators would say that the portion that we're going to study this morning, and Jim will study in a couple weeks from now, Mark chapter 13, is some of the most difficult Scripture to interpret. Um, so let me, let me say this. I'm going to teach and, and preach as I have the great honor of doing, and I want to be clear about what the, what the Scripture says is clear, but I also want to give you freedom, um, those of you who are real studious, to, to disagree. Uh, and, it, and in this, we believe in, in unity, but not uniformity. We agree on the big issues, um, what, what I like to call the, the close-handed issues, the first-order issues. That is, we believe that uh, about Jesus and the Bible and sin and heaven and hell and the need to turn from sin and trust in Jesus. And we also believe in open-handed issues, what I call second-order issues, that there are things that we can dialogue and discuss and debate and disagree about but we don't need to divide over. Okay, this morning we're gonna look at what, what I call two events. Jesus is gonna talk about a near event, a near prophecy, and a far event, a far prophecy. In Mark 13, Jesus is talking about events that are very near to, to his day and what happened within the course of some 40 years. And then also he's going to speak about the very distant future, the second coming of Jesus, the end of human history, um, which has now been you know, 2,000 years since Jesus came. And, and um, we need to know this. We don't know when he'll return, but he's going to start to get us prepared for that. So we have the near and the far. And the big debate is around 
Oh, well, what goes in the near category and what goes in the far category? And this is something that theologians call eschatology. Eschatology is, is the study of last things and the return of Jesus and when he will come and how will he come and what will happen um, and what will the world be like in the days preceding his, his coming. And everyone has an opinion, right? And in this age of COVID and a pandemic, everyone has a, an opinion, right? Well, it's no different with end times prophecy. Everyone has an opinion, and it can be fun to discuss those things, but we won't divide over them. So here's what I want to do. I want to talk just briefly about two extremes that we must avoid when discussing the end times. The first extreme is this, uh, to over-sensationalize. To over-sensationalize. For some, the tendency is to obsess about biblical prophecy by trying to fit every news headline into some sort of end times prophetic timeline. And Paul warned us about this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled. By the way, he assumes that Jesus is coming back. He just says, don't be unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Some believers there in, in Thessalonians this Thessalonica had stopped working and we're just waiting for the return of Jesus. The second thing uh, I want us to be careful about is being trivial about the second coming. Being too cool for school, right? Others don't think about the return of Christ at all and they often roll their eyes at this very important doctrine. That's not biblical. As a matter of fact, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 3 says this, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, there will be last days, scoffers will come. Scoffing, right? Haters going to hate. Scoffers going to scoff. Following their own evil desires. Wow. Wow. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on uh, as it has since the beginning of creation. So you say, well, Lee, what, what do you want to teach us this morning? It's going to be a somber teach. It's going to be a focused teach. Hopefully at the end, um, it'll be very practical and encouraging for the child of God, the believer in Christ Jesus. All of it's encouraging, but it is sober. But here's the big idea that I want you to get this morning. Take a look behind me. And it's this, we need to be ready. Hard things are coming. Hard things are coming, but God can and will help us respond rightly. Be ready. Hard things are coming, but God can and will help us respond rightly. So our teaching this morning will come from Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. And it is known as the Olivet Discourse because Jesus is teaching his disciples on the Mount of Olives. You can see that picture behind me. That's modern day. Um, we'll read this in just a minute, but basically... Jesus will be teaching his disciples on this mountain, looking back over towards Jerusalem, looking back at the temple. That's why it's called the Olivet Discourse or the Olivet Sermon. Now, some of you are, are thinking this, well, Lee, 13 verses, you're only teaching 13 verses. Isn't that a short sermon? Lee, you never teach a short sermon. Is this a short sermon? 
Well, actually, it's not a short sermon. It's pretty long. It's 37 verses. Um, Jim will pick up the other 24 verses two weeks from this Sunday on the 27th. You do not want to miss that teach. It's going to be really, really good. All right, let's jump into the text. Jesus is going to make three predictions, okay? Number one, Jesus says this, um, the temple will be destroyed. The temple will be destroyed. Verse one, Mark 13, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, and he's excited. This is some national pride. He says, look, look, teacher, look, teacher. What massive stones, what magnificent buildings. To which Jesus replies, do you see all those great buildings? Yeah, I just said, look at them. Do you see them? Yeah, I said that. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every stone will be thrown down. What? Debbie Downer, right? The disciples commented to Jesus about the beauty and size of the temple. Indeed, it was a magnificent building. It, it, it most, most likely looked like this. That is in the, it's called the, the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. I've been there. I've seen it. I didn't take that picture, but I saw that. Uh, this doesn't do it justice. I mean, it, it was magnificent. It was massive, right? It, this kind of gives us an idea uh, what it looked like to the disciples and to Jesus. This was the second temple, and Herod the Great spent the last, it was all total, it took 80 years, but he spent the last 40 years of his life in what would be the equivalent of billions of dollars in our economy to, to build this thing. It wasn't quite finished when Jesus made that proclamation. It was close. And so you can imagine, right, as beautiful as the temple was, Jesus knew the time was coming when it would be destroyed and not one stone would be left upon another. And this was an audacious claim. I mean, the temple to the, the, the Jews represented the place where God lived. This is where you went and, and you sacrificed and you met the living God. And so to think about this being destroyed was to think about God being destroyed. They thought it was as indestructible as God himself. It would be as audacious, as crazy as me saying, I'm going to go to Washington, D.C., and I'm going to declare that the U.S. Capitol building will, will be destroyed. A few days earlier, Jesus made the same prediction. You may remember this. We were teaching in Mark a couple of months ago, and we talked about as he entered, entered into the temple courtyard, as he entered into Jerusalem, so to speak, on Palm Sunday, and he stopped on the Mount of Olives, and he wept over Jerusalem. He said this, verse 41, as he, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you... Even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace. He's like, man, I, God is here. At the end of our talk, Mick is going to talk about Advent and what it means for, for God to be with us. Jesus, I'm here. God is here. Your Savior is here. Your peace is here. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days, verse 43, will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. Oh man, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. The reason the temple was gonna be destroyed was because God had visited Jerusalem in the person of Jesus Christ and they refused to see him as God. And they were, they were guilty of spiritual blindness. They didn't recognize that Jesus had come to bring ultimate peace. 
Here's what they thought. You just tell me if this sounds familiar, okay? They thought peace was going to be delivered from a political messiah. They thought a political messiah would come and destroy their enemies, in this case the, the Romans, and set them up, put them in charge. But Jesus brought a different kind of peace, an inner peace, a lasting peace, an eternal peace that surpasses all, all of our understanding. There, there may be some people right now here this morning who are listening to me, and, and you're making the same mistake. You're thinking, man, Donald Trump is going to bring me peace. Joe Biden is, he, Joe Biden is going to bring me some peace. You, well, it's, it's the culture. My culture, my identity is attached to the culture, and culture is going to bring me peace, right? Or some cause, or some substance, or some material will give you peace. But I'm here to tell you, none of those things will give you peace. The only way for us to have peace is to recognize that Jesus Christ came from God died for our sins, rose again, and wants to come have a relationship with us. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 14 to his disciples shortly before he would go to the cross? He says this, John chapter 14 and verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. The world offers all sorts of false peace. And that's the culture we live in today, right? We, we, we want the, 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 the kingdom without the king. We want peace apart from the peace giver. Jesus says it doesn't work that way. And here's my prayer. My pray, prayer is that God will open the eyes of your heart and you'll be able to see Jesus and receive his peace. I'm telling you, everything else is fool's gold. I grew up in a very progressive, liberal, hedonistic, materialistic family. That's what I grew up with. And they were running after everything. Money, power, prestige, substances, political, political answers, cultural answers, and, and time and time again, they're like, this does not satisfy. It never will. It never will. By the way, the prediction of Jesus came true 40 years later exactly as he described it. It's the near event. It's the near prophecy. In 70 AD, the Roman general Titus surrounded Jerusalem and he laid siege to the city. He built ramparts. No food went in and any Jews trying to escape were killed or enslaved. After the long siege, the, Romans, the Roman army attacked and the temple and the city were destroyed just as Jesus said. First prediction we see Jesus predict the destruction of the temple. Secondly, we see him predict the rise of disturbing events. Verse 3, Mark chapter 13, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, just like we saw, opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately. I mean, you can imagine, they're a little shook up, right? Whoa, dude, you're, whoa, what? What? You're, you're going to bring down, who's going to bring down the temple? The temple's going to be brought down? Tell us when will all these things happen and what will be the sign that they're all about to be fulfilled? 
And, and Jesus said to them, this is interesting, he doesn't really answer their question directly, but he answers it indirectly. He says, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, verse 8, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places and famines. And, and he says this, these are the beginning of birth pains. In verse 4, the disciples asked for for a sign when, when some of these end times would happen. And Jesus said there, they'll take the, that these signs will be the, the, the beginning of birth pains. Of course, no, nobody except the Father knows exactly when these future events will occur. And by the way, anytime you read about someone setting a date, a time, you immediately know that they're, a, to a certain extent, a false prophet. Instead, Jesus said, we... we we could look for certain trends to be happening. These are like birth pains for an expectant mother. When a mother-to-be is pregnant, they, they usually have a, a due date. But that's just an estimate. You're not going to want to hear this, uh, mothers, especially those of you who are first-time mothers or you're expecting. I've been told by people who know that only 5% of babies are born on their, on their due date. But God has wisely designed the birth process that a woman starts having contractions a few hours before the baby arrives. What's going on? Well, the contractions serve as an early warning system. The baby is coming, so make your plans accordingly. That's the analogy that Jesus used, uh, used about certain disturbing trends. They serve as an early warning system for his return. He mentions three. I want you to look at these. Spiritual confusion, military conflicts, and natural calamities. I'm going to spend most of our, our time this morning on spiritual confusion. You say, well, why not the other two? Well, the other two are, they're going to happen whether you like it or not, whether I like it or not. Do we see um, wars and rumors of wars? Do we see more military conflicts? You bet. Since the time that, that Jesus um, resurrected until this very moment, there have been a ton of, just a ton of war. There's been a ton of natural calamities. People who know better than I say that those things have increased. But what can you do? Now, spiritual confusion, this is something that we, we, can, we can resist, right? Jesus said there would be many people showing up claiming they are the Messiah or they have the ultimate spiritual truth. So Jesus knows the future. Jesus controls the future. Jesus, in fact, prophesied something that no one could, thought could possibly happen, the destruction of the temple. That's the near event, the near prophecy. And then, then here he gives us the far event, that in addition there will be false teachers and they will begin in the days of Jesus and they will continue until the second coming of Jesus. Please hear this. Not every religion is right. Not every spiritual leader tells the truth. Not every gifted, powerful person is leading you toward the truth of God. Some lead astray. Now, this is very controversial in our day to say that it's not enough to be spiritual, but you need to be truthful. I'm amazed at people. Believers will say, well, you know, I don't know if they're really speaking the truth, but they're so kind, they're so nice, they're so sweet, they're so presentable. They do good things, but is it truth? Is it truth? They have a smile on their face, and they, ha they do some truthful things. They, they say some truthful things. 
it is not enough just to be sincere. You also have to be biblically right about who God is and the direction your life is going. And Jesus says here, there are religions and false teachers and spiritual influencers who will come to lead people astray. And he says that they will prey on the emotions of people who are scared. In that day, people were, were devastated emotionally. When the temple was destroyed, life as, as they knew it was forever altered. Now think about this. Their feasts, their high holy days, their ethnic devotion, their national identity, their spiritual history was forever changed. And to say the least, it led to anxiety. Just like today. To say the least, there is a season of anxiety. Can you feel it? It's palpable. It's tangible. We're in a pandemic. None of us have gone through a pandemic. We don't know how to act. We act like we know how to act. We don't know how to act. So we're scared. And on top of that, for many people, times are tough economically. The world feels unstable. It's changing. And much of it's not for the good. And people are losing money. They're losing help. They're, they're losing encouragement and hope. And so Jesus is saying that when, when times get hard and people get scared, you know what happens? Wolves will rise up amongst the sheep. You need to know this, friends. In, in the Bible, there are sheep. Those are Christians. There are wolves. Those are false teachers. And there are shepherds. Those are pastors who love their people and who love the scriptures and love Jesus. And through the scriptures, try to lead the people to love and follow and serve Jesus. That's my job. That's our job here at New Heights. And we feel a God-given burden to protect the people that God has given us. So what happens when times get hard? Unfortunately, some will run after false saviors. Some will run after what I call functional messiahs. They function as a messiah, but not really. And sometimes this can be false religious leaders leading our people astray. And sometimes more practically, this can be um, my spouse will become my savior. My kids will be my savior. My grandkids will be my savior. My job will be my savior. My money will be my savior. Or politics will be my savior. Our culture, my cultural identity will be my savior. Someone or something is going to get me through this really hard time. And the big idea is this. There's only one savior and his name is Jesus. And any functional savior, anyone or anything that we cling to, thinking that this ultimately will deliver us from these hard times, it's demonic. It's false. It's an idol. Now, not that that person or thing is necessarily bad. They might be, by the way. But when we put them in the place of God and we expect them to deliver us during this hard time, that's a bad thing. This is why when our spouse or our kids or our money or our job or politics or culture fails us, we can lose hope. And it's not that we shouldn't be discouraged. It's not that, that, it's, that times aren't hard. They, they are. But it does mean that we need to be certain that our hope is in Jesus. And we're running to him, trusting in him, leaning on him. And so I would encourage you, always be checking your heart. When times get hard, let me ask you a question. Where do you run? Where do you run? 
when, when times get hard, who do you trust? I'm, I'm always amazed, and, and please take this in the right way. When, when people say to me as a pastor, and I've been a pastor for a long time now, I say, man, the, the church has let me down. I'm leaving God. I'm like, the church is full of sinners, and I'm, I might be the chief sinner, by the way. Did Jesus let you down? Well, no, enough said. Did Jesus let, well, you know, the church, they voted for so-and-so, or they didn't vote for so-and-so, or, or the, I, I, I watch cable, and those guys are nuts, and I, okay, did Jesus let you down? Who was your God? Was your Savior the church? Was your Savior your community group? Was your Savior your youth group? Was your, am I your Savior? Take Ruth out for a cup of coffee. She'll clear you of that illusion real quick. When times get hard, who do you trust? Who do you run to? When times get hard, where do you seek refuge? Jesus says hard times will come. False teachers will arise to lead people astray. Be careful that's not you. Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple. He predicted the rise of disturbing events. And lastly, Jesus predicts persecution against his followers. Mark 13, verse 9, Jesus says, you must be on your guard. You must be watchful. You'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues, okay? What's going on right now is the near and the far. The, the near prophecy, he's talking to his disciples and he's saying, get ready, it's gonna get really bad for you. The far prophecy is, he's talking to us potentially as disciples, get ready, it might be, it might be really bad for you. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Isn't this cool? Basically, what Jesus is saying is, as you stay in step with the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit will give you the words you need to say. Just say what is ever given you at the time, for it is, it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Now, being delivered over to councils is a reference to the local Sanhedrin. And standing before kings shows the, the, that hardship starts local and then goes national and even international. Um, the word witness, this is interesting, I think some of you know this, but is the word from which we get martyr. We get martyr. This prophecy began to be fulfilled in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are imprisoned and and beaten. Acts 7, Stephen is condemned to death by the Sanhedrin. Acts 12, James and Peter are arrested by King Herod, and James is beheaded. Acts 16, Paul and Silas are imprisoned in Philippi. Acts 24, Paul is tried before a governor named Felix. Acts 26, he's on trial before Festus and King Agrippa. Acts 27 and 28, he is sent by ship to stand trial in front of Caesar. And uh, he'll remain as a prisoner in Rome and then be executed. So near, near event, right? You say, well, whoa, 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 wait a second, Lee. What, what about now? Is that, is that happening today? 
It is. It is. All over the world, believers are experiencing persecution. If you want to learn more um, about the plight of the persecuted today, check out um, The Voice of the Martyrs at um, persecution.com. The Voice of the Martyrs at persecution.com. You'll pull that up and immediately you'll see like a newspaper, headline after headline of intense persecution. Right? And immediately when I, I was telling Noah the other day, when you pull that up, you go, oh, um, you know, like not getting to go to my favorite restaurant during a pandemic. I don't know if that's persecution. When you read a headline that talks about 32 believers killed in a certain part of the world, church bombed, children kidnapped. And you're like, oh, okay, wow. Persecution still takes place. And when you pull it up, do me a favor. I, I would encourage you to do it regularly. Pray. Pray for your brothers and sisters all over the world who are being persecuted. You ready for this? Over 100,000 Christians are martyred for their faith each year. Each year. You say, well, hey, hey, Lee, this isn't happening in America, is it? I get it. It's happening to people over there. But we're, we're safe, aren't we? Wallace Henley, a Christian columnist, wrote an article in 2015, that was five years ago, called Dear Churches in America Prepare to be Treated Like First Century Christians in Rome. He list, listed a five-step process by which a, a Christian's prophetic voice is over time silenced in a culture. If he says, first, you're marginalized. Well, that's happened. Then there's a caricature of you. You say, what's a caricature? It's a silly... Um, Drawing, it's a joke. It's they're nuts. They're crazy. They're st don't listen to them. Then there's vilification, and then there's criminalization, and then eventually there is elimination. He writes, and to which I agree, we have reached the stage of vilification. In other words, Christians are now regarded by the consensus Christians who actually believe in the Bible, right? As Jim talked about um, a few weeks ago, when the sound went out and it got all crazy in here, and he. We have certain views, whether it's our support of the right to life or our views on marriage, that those views may cause us one day to not just to be vilified, but to be criminalized. And Christians are now regarded by the consensus establishments as the villains in, in what is known as a transformed, enlightened, progressive America. And I wish it ended there. I'm like, Whoa. wow. But Jesus says it gets, it gets worse. Verse 12 Jesus goes on, brother will betray brother to death. Now, I want you to stop and think about that. Man, I, I, I really love my brother, my older brother. I mean, I have a younger brother too, but I wasn't raised with him. I don't know him real well. Um, he was raised in Mexico City. I was raised in San Diego. But my older brother, I know real well. And the thought of me turning him, him in or him turning me in Oh, my word. Because of our beliefs in Jesus to potentially be killed. And a father, his child, like fathers will betray their children and children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. And I, I used to think this is crazy. This will never happen in my lifetime. This is so far off that all of a sudden this new thing happens called cancel culture. And I go, whoa. 
You got people like, I wish you would die over your political belief. You don't deserve a voice. You don't deserve to live. I'm like, whoa, whoa. Now you say, Lee, is this happening right now? I don't know. But I never thought I'd see that. I'd live to see that. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Opposition from government, governmental and legal authorities will be harsh, but rejection by family and friends will be heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. And I know some of you on a much smaller level, but still you've experienced some of that already because of your, because of your belief in Jesus. Look at verse 13 one more time. I want to camp here for just a little bit. Everyone will hate you, Jesus says, because of, of, of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Let me talk a little bit about what it means to stand firm to the end. It's important to note that the end that Mark is talking about here is not the tribulation. You say, well, what is it? It's the end of your life. It's the end of your life. So how can we survive? How can we handle this? How can we handle whether it's Jewish persecution, Gentile persecution, family hatred, family persecution, family execution? Uh, a culture that is more and more against the ethos of God's word and Jesus himself? How can we handle it? How can we handle a, a pandemic and societal unrest? Well, the truth is the one who endures to the end will be saved and and what are we learning from that? Well, sadly, in real time, we're learning that superficial faith will collapse under persecution. Here's what superficial faith says. Hey, <laughs> when everyone is on the Jesus wagon, I'm in. Woo, give me some worship. Give me some fellowship. Oh, oh wait a second. Society is turning against Jesus? Nah. You're not worth it, Jesus. <laughs> this is getting real. You remember Jesus, right? Jesus is, is, is teaching, and there's a group of disciples, not just his 12, but most likely hundreds, not thousands of people gathering around him. And he had, he had been known for feeding people, like making food appear from nowhere. And, and fish and bread appear from nowhere, and he's doing miracles, and they're like, woo, Jesus, heal me. Jesus, give me some food. Jesus, right on, okay. Hey, by the way, take up your cross and follow me. Whoa, whoa, whoa. you mean take up this cruel Roman instrument of death, be willing to actually die for you? And the Bible says that most of them said, thanks, but no thanks. You say, well, I would never do that. Jesus is just warning us. Okay, I'm just telling you ahead of time, be ready. Be ready. The early church dealt with this. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19. John says, they went out from us, but they didn't really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belong to us. He's talking to people who were in the church who went, nah, no thank you. No thanks. Got something better. Hey, this is a basic gospel truth. I want you to hear this. 
Authentic, God-given faith will endure. Why? Because the Holy Spirit will provide strength because he lives inside of us and God will provide grace because he promises to do, do so. Trouble, deception, persecution, suffering will burn up the chafe, right? It'll reveal the shallow, weedy, rocky ground of false profession. And under these kinds of pressures, superficial interest in Christ will have no endurance. If you're on the Jesus train for just the moment because you like a girl, you thought some worship songs were cool, it's what everybody's doing, but you're not tethered to the Word of God, the Spirit of God does not live inside of you. When the persecution comes, when the trials come, when the pandemic comes, when societal unrest comes, when cancel culture comes, you'll go, thanks, but no thanks. Loved you, Jesus, when it was easy. Not really in it when it's hard. Let me be very clear. You need to hear this. We don't earn our salvation by enduring. It's not a work. We don't keep our salvation by gritting our teeth and enduring. We demonstrate our salvation by enduring. We have a salvation that's a gift of grace. It is authenticated in the midst of suffering. All suffering. Remember what, what Jesus' brother James said. James said this. Count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials. You feeling that right now, by the way? Are you counting it joy we're in a pandemic? Are you raging? God! Count it all joy when you endure various trials. When you encounter them, knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance, true faith is strengthened to endure. Simply put, I want you to write this down. So you can see it behind me. Perseverance is the proof that our profession is real. Say, so how do I know? How do I know? Keep standing. Keep enduring. You fall down, you get up. You keep loving Jesus no matter what. It may be tough, but Jesus will be faithful to keep us by his power. So please stay faithful, stay true. Let me remind us that it will be worth it. It'll be worth it all when we see him face to face. I'm a little bit older than most of you in this room, but as each day passes, I can't wait. I know for some of you, you're like, dude, I'm young, I'm not dead yet, okay? I'm not dead yet either, but I still can't wait. All that this world has to offer, I'm like, eh, meh. I can't wait to see Jesus face to face. Let me finish with some takeaways. Um, I think these are a little more positive. We'll try and end on a more positive, upbeat. Last service, people were like, I, I like the message, but I felt a little down. Okay. Um, that's why we preach the, the, the word of God ver verse by verse, right? Because if we just picked topics, we would skip sections like this, wouldn't we? <laughs> I would. But this is, a, we'll finish on a little bit of an up. Okay, here's one takeaway. It's going to feel a little negative, but I think it's positive. We need to live out our faith. Practically speaking, we just need to live it out. Here's the question for, for you and I. Um, do we live more like the world or do we live more like, or do we live like a follower of the word? 
In other words, are we infatuated with the, the world and not infatuated with the Word of God? We need to be infatuated with the Word of God. We need to live out the Word of God. Let me just say this. The study of God's prophetic program is always meant to have a purifying effect on God's people. Look at these scriptures. They're so good. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, there it is, he's coming back. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now get this, verse 3. All who have this hope in him purify themselves. All who are excited about his return live holy, like we sang earlier. You're holy. We're not talking perfection. We're talking purity, a desire to be more like Jesus as, we, as each and every day goes by. Secondly, this is good. This is encouraging. Encourage one another. In, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul has, and we went through this. I think I actually got to teach it. I loved it. Paul spends a great amount of time um, encouraging the believers there in Thessalonica about the rapture about meeting Jesus in the air. And then he gets to the very end of that, and here's what he says. He literally says, Therefore, in light of all this talk about meeting Jesus again, encourage one another with the words that I just gave you. Talk about the return of Christ on a regular basis. You know how the early church greeted one another? Like, if I were to greet you, I would say, Yo, what's up? How you doing? Fist bump. That's pretty cool. You know how they greeted each other? Hey, Steve, Maranatha. Kathy, Maranatha. You say, what does Maranatha mean? Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Jesus. That's how they greet each other. Hey, whoo, man, times are tough. But Jesus is coming back. Maranatha, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come. Number three, hey, despite appearances, things are not out of control. They're not out of control. In, in spite of all that's going on, the Lord remains on the throne. Nothing surprises him. It is tempting to despair when we read about all the problems in the world. Nature seems to be revolting. People are becoming more violent. Less and less is considered sacred. We're watching hearts grow hard, grow cold. However, take courage. Jesus said this is going to happen. So remain faithful. He said, hey, guys, this is what's going to happen. I'm telling you about the labor pains. You're in the midst of labor pains. It's, it's a sign, right? The baby is coming right? I'm coming. Just, I told you. Number four, um, we need to beware of end times hysteria. There will always be people who call us to run to this teacher or that teacher for quote unquote, the secret code to the end times. You read any secret code books on the end times? Don't have to raise your hand. I have. Um, we must remain level-headed. It is right and proper to study, but we should do so carefully. Keep in mind that Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour, not even him. No one knows the year when he's coming back, not even him. The coming of Christ will be sudden and unmistakable. We do not need to know secret codes or possess a decoder ring, okay? Um, by the way, Jim will talk more about this in two weeks. Don't miss it. It's going to be really good. Lastly, um, tell people about Jesus. Don't get so caught up in end time stuff that it paralyzes you. Like a, a, a pandemic and societal unrest uh, a form of, a form, it's, it's going on, of persecution shouldn't cause us to our, retreat to our bunkers and arm up. 
It should cause us to be like, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Hey, and I want to encourage you with this. This has been going on for 2,000 years. Do you remember when Jesus is getting ready to ascend to the Father in Acts, Acts chapter 1? He's, he's been crucified. He was buried. He resurrects. He comes back, spends 40 days with the disciples and 500 other witnesses, and he's teaching them and discipling them even more after his death. And he's getting ready to ascend. And what's one of the first things that people say to him as he's ascending? Hey, when are you coming back? Look at verse 7, Acts chapter 1 and verse 7. It is not for you. This is Jesus' response to them. It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. He says we're not to be focused on date setting, but instead we're called to be spirit-empowered witnesses. You say, where does it say that? Next verse, verse 8, let's read it. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Hey, let me just encourage you again. If you know and love Jesus here this morning, you made a profession of faith whenever you did. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13 that the Holy Spirit came to live inside of you. So when we say God in us, the hope of glory, that's the Spirit of God, third person of the Trinity, living inside of us, giving us kerygma, which dynamite, supernatural resurrection power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my martyrs, my witnesses in Jerusalem, and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Hey, get this. Instead of wondering, we should be worshiping and witnessing. Wow. All right. I'm done. I'd like the prayer team to come up right now. Come on up. You'll see them to my left and my right and all around the room. The worship team's coming up as well. And if you'd like to pray with um, someone about anything, end time, salvation, your marriage, your singleness, depression, addiction, um, pandemic, societal unrest, I, you name it, um, these people will pray with you. Now, for some of you, you're, you're sitting there and you're going, well, uh, you talked about peace. You, you talked about the, the Prince of Peace, Jesus, the giver of peace, Jesus, um, was rejected by his people. And, and maybe you're at that place where you've, you've rejected Jesus as your peace or you didn't even realize that he's your only hope for peace. And you're here this morning and you're going, I want that peace. I want that peace that surpasses understanding. I want to know what it looks like to have a relationship with the God of the universe. Today's the day. The Bible says that salvation, today is the day of salvation. Let me encourage you. Come up here and talk with somebody. I'll be up here. Come talk with me. And, and let me tell you, you have an enemy, um, the devil, and a demonic horde that whispers to you all the time, like, you're not worthy of that peace, or you've sinned too much for that peace, um, or the church is hypocritical. That peace isn't real. And I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to come up and talk to somebody about what it looks like to have a relationship with Jesus. For me, you've heard, many of you have heard my story. Um, I was 17 years old. Good grief, that was a long time ago. And as I alluded to earlier, I was raised in a non-believing Jewish family, and I'd never heard about Jesus other than he was a cuss word. 
and I heard the gospel for the first time, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and that he came to give me peace and to die for my sins. So I went forward and I confessed, I confessed that I was a sinner who desperately needed a savior. And in that moment, I became a follower of Jesus. The Bible says if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, we become children of God. Let's make that happen today. Now I'm gonna do something I don't usually do. It's a little bit different. Instead of a typical prayer, um, I'm gonna finish this morning with, with a benediction. And before I do that, let me also say this. There's some of you in this room who are like, I am a believer, but I need to get baptized. Jesus commanded us to get baptized, to tell the world we're followers of him, to tell the world that my sins have been buried and I've come up as a new creation. And if you're like, I wanna get baptized, come up to myself or Mick or anyone around the room who's one of our prayer warriors or, or just someone you know on staff and just say, hey, I wanna get baptized. And we can make that happen. You want to do it today? It might be a little hard if you don't have a swimsuit. We can do that or we can make arrangements to make that happen. Well, let me leave us with a benediction that comes from Titus. And I think it's really powerful and fitting for our talk this morning. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Thank you, God. And here's what it teaches us to say. No to ungodliness and worldly passions. And because the Spirit of God lives in, a, in us, we can now live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager, eager to do what is good. Maranatha, beloved Maranatha, come Lord Jesus.